As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 121 is K.C. Clifford, who released her first album, Times Like These, in the year 2000. You're listening to the song Emily from that release. We are now marking her seventh release with her self-titled K.C. Clifford album. We'll be discussing the song No More Living Small from that, then looking back to the song Orchid from the 2010 album Broken Things, and then all the way back to her second album, 2004's Teeth Marks on My Tongue. The song is Find My Way Home. And we'll conclude by listening to another song off the new album, You Couldn't Stay. For more information, please see at caseyclifford.com. And for more about this podcast, you can look at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com or support us at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. I will have played a little bit of Emily from times like these, 2001, just to have something showing your early work. We're going to get very quickly to something from the most recent, your self-titled album, 2020, No More Living Small. Can you give us something about the jump from that original thing that they just heard a little bit of to now? What style you're at now as compared to where you started? Well, it is a bit of like musical whiplash, but it's all still telling stories and true things about life and humanity and experience. But musically, you know, it, it went from pretty folky, pretty Americana-ish to more of a pop soul feel. It's definitely morphed. I'm gathering that since you've put out six albums or so, but a couple of those are live albums, and I normally wouldn't count those, but the live albums are really good. They have the little stories, they have extra songs. And so it seems like no matter what's happening, well, tell me now, like what we're about to hear, this is a pretty produced thing. When you do this live, is it much more stripped down? Is it still on the folky end or, or do you have the nine piece band? Well, we just did it with a 12 piece band actually uh, at the release. So we have realized it in its full form. I've also done it as piano vocal. We've also realized it on guitar when there wasn't a keyboard there. I think the the meat of the song is available. It's accessible depending no matter what the what kind of dress you put on it. Okay, well, the no more living spall we can take <laughs> more literally than was intended for this arrangement then. Uh, do you want to say just a little bit about that song before they hear it? Yeah, no more living small. My husband calls this song my manifesto. It's a very personal song about just my journey to find myself and to as a woman figure out that it was okay to take up space, both physically and emotionally and just in the world. So this is a song of personal victory, I guess, in some way, but it's also uh, something I hope to put out to others that they might be able to latch onto it and resonate with their own process as well. It's a very emotional song for me, but it feels like I'm 45 and 
this is who I am. And I finally get to just be okay with that. Trying to please you Stepping aside Never finding out Who I am But I've realized It's no kind of lie Being always too much And never
All right, so we've got this slow 3-4 gospel, or does it count as 6-8? Because the, the snare is only on the second one. Doom, <laughs> doom, doom, ta. I never really know, but it, it's it's really slow. But uh, yeah, it's, tell me about how that sentiment got matched with this musical setting. Well, I wrote this song chorus first. So in terms of the craft, the chorus was, I wrote it a cappella. I didn't have an instrument. I just felt the melody and then later came back with Dan Walker, my co-writer and said, could you put this into time and make sure, you know, it can have some harmonic structure to it that makes sense. And so we kind of tamed it a little bit from the vocal that I sang in terms of the way that they treated it in the studio. I would definitely call it a three, four, and I would call it a gospel song for sure. But anytime we're in the studio, we always just try to serve the song. You know, what is the song? What is it asking for? The song is always the star for me and the content. And so, so yeah, I think what Will, my producer, did with it was great. It was exactly what I heard in my head. So that's interesting, starting with the melody here, because so much of the melody, it sounds like you have some sort of basis that you're then jamming over, right? It's not, there's a lot of this, like whole phrases that come in before the one, like the, the whole, the whole thing is kind of, you know, so that you can do it just guitar and vocal or something and still have it sound really interesting. And this seems to be like, I think this is going to run through all the three of the songs we're going to talk about today. I wrote a melody that spoke to me and it was a song prompt. Actually, it was a, I was at a conference and you had to draw a slip of paper out of a fishbowl and write a song based on that. And I hated my song prompt and it kind of angered me in a way that made me write the song <laughs> for lack of a better description. But in terms of the musicality of it, yeah, I just felt the melody. You know, that's, I mean, I'm a singer and a lyricist. So for me to get on a good melody and just let it sing, I, I think a great melody can be a, apart from structure. It definitely was not a structure first song. Like I was just trying to figure out, in fact, let's just, I want to pull out the chorus a little bit here. No more I'm not afraid of being too much. Is that still the chorus? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That whole thing is the chorus. Yeah. The chorus itself has got three parts. It's got the actual hook, the no more living small. And, and of course, the I will not disappear just to ease your fears. That's with those harmonies. That's like that's a really you know motivating bit. But then we've got sort of chorus part two, this. But then. The if I rise, if I fall, that is also seems part of the chorus, right? It's like a three-part chorus. It's not just the hook and then be done. It's not. I love writing oddly structured choruses. I mean, it's kind of my husband who teaches music theory and songwriting at the college level always laughs at people when they first start to play with me and they look at the chart and they're like, wait a second. So is there an extra bar of two here? Like what's, what's happening? Is this a five, four Casey? What's happening right here? You know? And I'm like, I don't know. I just felt the song. Like I just sang it the way I thought it should be sung. And so, yeah, it's a big, long, epic kind of chorus. And I love it. I mean, I love it for that. It doesn't stop. It just says everything it needs to say and is not afraid of being too much, right? The chorus is illustrative in that way. 
Well, and then there's a left turn in the chords, which also makes me kind of surprised that you wrote the melody first. So right where I stopped here, I got nothing to prove. Was that an afterthought, like in terms of you've got the melody, but there's nothing that about the melody that dictates necessarily that that chord is going to happen at that time. Yeah, that's Dan's taste and his flavor. He's like, okay, well, here, Dan is always, always looking for that cooler chord that is not so straightforward. So he kind of brings that taste to the table. That's nice, nice to be able to draw on that. Because, yeah, it, I find when I write something that's just purely a melody, I might write that like, oh, okay, it's three chords. <laughs> it's one chord. <laughs> like, it's the dumbest possible thing because I wasn't screwing around with a keyboard or a guitar when I was writing it. Let's jump to the bridge here just to kind of get a few of the pieces out on the table here. No holding back. Nothing I lack. I can take That slow motion thing. Can you say a little about sort of your approach? So was this the bridge the last thing or was this... Well, I don't actually think of that as a bridge. I think of that as a pre-chorus. It matches the first verse, right? We just put a space in between it instrumentally. That was Will's idea in the studio. When you have the second verse, you have that instrumental section with the gospel choir doing the ooze. And so all of that part you just played is basically pre-chorus. It's just there's a break in between the second verse and the pre-chorus on the second run, just to kind of illustrate taking up space. And also it's like a musical kind of painting a picture, but also like just here I am like with nothing to lose. It's kind of this sentiment of just being okay with being there and not needing to rush to the next thing. Can you say anything in general about how the degree to which you're conducting? There's there's a lot of pieces to this orchestra here that you've got your piano filling space and the guitar is not solo. You know, it's taking up just riffs here and there and the organ I mean, I guess you've got kind of an organ solo, but during the solo section, nothing is really bursting out. Organ is the primary instrument there, but I think the gospel choir kind of doing their thing is also a feature of that part. And yeah, it wasn't meant to be a big, fancy solo section by any means. You know, that's not the purpose it was serving. Yeah, it's real spare. I mean, I, I love that about it. Like, the song is kind of overstated, but the treatment of it is understated. Yeah, that ooh-ooh-ooh part, that the guitar actually just goes away there. So you've got, you know, some drum action at the end, but otherwise, it's just that organ that's not quite a solo and but letting it focus, let it just chill a little bit. I mean, so again, it was the choir conceived as the last thing? I, I assume it was kind of added as the last thing, but like, where did it come in the process here? We always knew there would be a choir. So when we did pre-production, we decided kind of instrumentation and what would happen where. And that's when kind of the final arrangement decisions happened. And so, you know, normally when I wrote it, I didn't have a break there, but Will, my producer said, no, I think we'll pause here. It'll be kind of a cool, different structural arrangement piece to put in and then do the pre-chorus and the chorus and final out and not double the chorus, you know, because that's a very long chorus to double. So yeah, I think the gospel choir was always in the plan and we knew that they would kind of have a part there. I guess anything else specifically about when it got to the point where Will is making, was it his band? Was it your band? How did this unit come together? 
we put together a group of musicians. Some of them we have played with before and some of them, I don't play with a huge band normally. I normally do a Dan and David and my husband, David, and I play as a trio a lot. So we chose handpicked the musicians we wanted based on their talent and their skill in this kind of vibe. Is this the the first take, the third take? How much, how much rehearsal kind of went in with this group? Was it rhythm section first? Was it four of them? Yeah, we recorded live. So we tracked basic tracks live in studio. So we had piano, drums, bass, guitar in studio, all in a big room because we wanted to give a nod to the vintage records and the analog days. And so we were all together. There was no rehearsal time. We came in and we took it song by song and we had the, everybody had their charts and Will would kind of cast a vision up in the console room and then they would go down and see how it felt and just lay it down. And, and Will kind of gave guidance as they went and kind of got a feel for it. There was maybe, oh gosh, I mean, we maybe did five to eight takes of something depending on its complexity. And then, of course, all the other stuff got layered later. So the organ and the guitar and the gospel choir, those were separate sessions in studio. I can see how, say, the organ and piano licks aren't, you know, just let them do what they want to do or the drums. But like, it sounds like a melody to set it up, something that you might have, you or Will might have hummed at him, but it, or, or was that just his instinct? That's just his taste. Just some tasty goodness. <laughs> okay, so now... <laughs> I've made you dwell on the arrangement to this extent just because it's so different on this song than everything else we're going to hear today. But I know that you're a lyrics and melody person and you just said that's the way you wrote it. That's the essence of the song. Did this one come out lyrically in one flow? Was there a lot of tinkering after the fact? Say a little about that process. Sure. The chorus came out in one flow. It was kind of as its own piece. And I took the chorus back home and had a writing session with Dan and said, what do you feel? I knew because of how long it was, the chorus wasn't kind of how big it was. And then it had some interesting time in it that I wanted to make sure I didn't get too far into crafting the song and kind of create a train wreck. And so once we got it into a time and it had a feel to it on the structure, he kind of laid out some chord options for the verses. And then we wrote those in a writing session together. And that was it. All right. It seems like some of the other songs have more trickery in terms of like, you know, choices of particular images here. This is mostly pretty straightforward. Super straightforward. Yeah. By design. So that all the idiosyncrasy comes mostly in just where rhythmically you're putting the beats. I guess it's gospel. Like that's the, the way they do it. I don't hear a lot of that on your earlier music. What's your relationship to that influence there? I mean, I grew up in the church singing hymns and in the Bible Belt. So, you know, there's always a little bit of that. And there's all there's so much gospel influence in country that also bleeds into folk, you know. So I think it is kind of all the same soup. It's just a different part of it. But I think that what happened to me on this record in general is being able to step out from behind my guitar and allow Dan to do his thing. I just got to become a singer again. And so... When people talk about well, what instruments do you play, you know, I say, oh, I play guitar and piano and some dulcimer, but I'm a vocalist. And I think I lived kind of feeling for a lot of years like that was a weakness of some kind, like I'm just a vocalist or something. But the truth is, is that I take my craft of singing very seriously. And I've studied at the college level. I practice my tail off, you know. So I think that 
this record allowed me to just be a singer. And that's one of its big differences between all my previous records. I wasn't hindered by any need to fit in or play. It's something I could play along with, or I just got to sing. And it opened up a space that was really like a part of my growing up. You know, I was a, I was a musical theater kid. I was an opera singer. So I did a lot of stand on the front of the stage and sing your heart out stuff. And now I get to do that again. The little moment that stood out for me was the, I will not keep quiet. The thing that you do at the beginning of that word, that little hiccup. Uh, <laughs> was that there from the very beginning? Are these things that, you know, you, you kind of do a melody and then I'm getting a little bored of this. Let me put a few more, a few little flourishes into it. Those are really technical artistic choices. A lot of singers who are young tend to overdo some of that stuff. You know, you kind of play your hand a little early. So I've learned in my career singing to learn how to dole that out with consideration, with thoughtfulness. But typically when I write a melody, some of those things are there immediately and some of them come with performing it. Some of it's like getting used to it, breaking in a pair of jeans. You know, it's like, oh yeah, okay, that's where I like to do that. And I'm really feeling that that way. Sure. Sort of the, the shape of your larynx, like where the, the hiccups adapting to the instrument, what's in your mind? I think I'm vocally known for kind of flipping in and out of head voice and having some of those nuances. That's very signature me. Well, let's get to a more guitar oriented back to Broken Things 2010 from the album Orchid, which also I was happy to hear the live version on your 2017 album, Coming Bear. But looking at the Orchid version, do you want to say a little about that before we play it here? This song for a long, long time was my favorite song I'd ever written. I think this song actually kind of wrote me more than me writing it. It's very true. It has a lot of code in it, I guess, but it's very true to my experience at the time. When I introduce the song, I usually talk about how I am a pretty hopeless perfectionist. Um, and I just know that if I keep trying to not try so hard, I can try to not be so perfect and try to not, you know, it's like try to figure it out. <laughs> and I was really grappling with that idea and the idea that I was so quick to offer kindness to other people, but I struggled to offer it to myself. I just couldn't let myself off the hook. And the song is about that kind of the gap between expectation and reality that life isn't about black and white. It's so much more about the gray areas and learning how to live into those. So that's kind of where the song was born from. We've seen pastures of plenty and fields of lack. Lost our way, lost our faith and the shirt off our backs. And I gave up hoping for a guarantee. But love keeps her promise every time you look at me. Between hell and sheer happiness There's a house by the ocean side 
all the broken things that the morning washed in the tide. I'm ice and I am fire. You are meek and mad. Might just be the death of me. Somewhere between hell and sheer happiness, there's a house by the ocean side, and we'll fill it with dreams and all the broken things that the morning washed in with the tide. We all try. Miles. We are haunted by quiet regret. With this taking our bones and desires untold and unmet, isn't anybody coming? So acoustic guitar, bass, but we still have pretty lush orchestration as we get down to it. Actual strings on here. I'm only hearing like a cello and a violin poking out. It was just two of them or was it layered further? There were four, actually. There was a quartet. And I assume that was last. <laughs> it was one of the last things. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts about how this this is one from hearing the live version? It sounds like, as far as you're concerned, kind of the, the song is... Those lyrics and those chords, which are pretty simple chords for the most part, you know, at least to start, it's just back and forth between two things. Is that the essence of it? Or after you record all this extra stuff, do you feel like, oh, if it doesn't have something doing that counter melody, then like it's not complete anymore? I'm kind of weird. I think that production is like playing dress up with a song. I think a song is great in its basic, most simplest form. It's like being an Olympic gymnast who can't do a somersault. Like if you can't strip a song down to its voice and instrument and have it be great, then I'm not sure. It's just, I don't really care to listen to it that much. Like, and that's just kind of my own listening taste preference. My husband is like an alt prog rock guy. I mean, he like loves big lush sound waves, you know, a whole different like wall of sound kind of stuff or jam band stuff. Like for me, I, I love the craft of songwriting. And so I love the idea of stripping a song down. So no, I think all of that adds to it and certainly adds to the listener experience. And it's beautiful. I love how Will 
arranged and treated this song in the studio is still one of my favorites. But I think the song is just as beautiful when it's just me on a stage with a guitar. Even though it's got a lush arrangements, the vocals are definitely in the front. There are parts of it where I was trying to figure out like, how many guitars are going on back there? I don't even know. Because it's all, or when <laughs> drums come in, like they're so well mixed with the rhythm guitar. It's just like a little thickening, except for the bridge when they actually get big. Let's stick with the lyrics and the story here to start with. I, I will make you talk about the focus on the dress up initially here. <laughs> yeah, so this has got more of, I don't know, vaguely biblical imagery, this fields of lack and things like that, these kind of a little more literary. Can you say a little about the process of putting this together and how many trips through and back? I wrote this song over three days where I literally sat with a guitar. I was full-time music touring at the time. So I had that luxury where I, I didn't have children yet. I sat in my little music room and I wrote the song because I had to finish it. There was something in it. It was finishing me. Like I said, it, the song was so true from my life at the time that I just felt so compelled to see it through. And it was hard. This song was like childbirth. I cried. I would write a line and I would weep. I mean, I just, it was very, very emotional process for me, kind of articulating the truth in it. And I would know that it was the right line when it would resonate so deeply that I would have to stop and like cry. But I stayed in my pajamas mostly for three days and I just wrote and wrote and wrote. And I'm a very, oh, I don't know what the right word is. Maybe I'm, I'm a very perfectionistic songwriter in my process. I, I write line to line typically, and I don't go to another line until the line before it is finished. So I don't just scratch out a bunch of stuff and then try to go back and redo it. I stay with a line almost painstakingly long. My husband's a songwriter and he won't write with me because of how long I take on each line. He just doesn't have the patience. Like that's just not his process. But for me, I literally would just stay with a line and try to pull the truth out of it, the marrow out of it as much as I could. And after three days, I remember I went to the gym to run on the treadmill and I got the final thing in the final, in the bridge. Like I really, like I was able to kind of like, I had a conversation with a friend at the gym and it crystallized and I went home and finished the bridge. There's gotta be at least writing a couplet at a time, not one line, because there's no way you write meek and mild first and then decide to rhyme with child. Like child must've been before mild. No, child was not before mild. Nope, it's literally line by line. I start with the first line. And it's like a song, like we were talking about No More Living Small earlier, a song where I write chorus first is really rare for me. I typically start with the very first line of the song and I write through. It's just, I have a very linear brain. And so in that way, and I think, gosh, how can I write a chorus when I don't know what I've said yet? Like, I don't even know what I've articulated. I'm not finishing any thoughts from before. So yeah, I, I literally wrote line by line, word by word. I didn't write the next line until the one before it was done and like done in the form that you're seeing now. Like it wasn't like I went back later and changed it. Sure. And, but if you're writing line by line, does that mean you have the melody or at least the rhythm for that line in mind? Cause you've got like big pauses between some of the words, hoping for a guarantee these. So that's part of the initial thing or that's a second step. A song like this, I wrote the music first. Mm. So I like found a chord progression that I liked first and I was writing in dad, dad. So I keep a guitar in dad, dad tuned down. So it's this really lush, open tuning and it has a kind of a drone to it because of that. And so I found just kind of a chord. I was like, well, okay, I like this very simple verse progression. 
And then I would begin to hum over it and find melody. And then as soon as I found melody for the first line, I would begin to find words and then go to the next and then rinse and repeat. So just to clarify, I play in drop D, certainly not that uncommonly. And I understand then the top of the D, of the dad, dad, (laughs) putting the top D down to top E down to D and putting the B string down to A, but the G string is all the way down to, so that you've got two of the same pitch D strings next to each other. Yeah, it's actually, yes, you have four Ds sounding at the same time and two As, and the two Ds are right next to each other. And we actually string it with, we don't use a G string on it, right? So we string it because we keep a guitar in that tuning because I have several songs in that tuning. Well, let's, since you took so much time on these lines, let's look at some of these lines. I don't want, I don't want to make you demystify them necessarily, but it's fine. I mean, the first verse is pretty straightforward in terms of, you know, life is hard, but love makes that worthwhile, right? You can get, get your problems because love is there. And no matter how bad things are, love keeps its promise every time you look at me. That I understand. Let's talk a little more about the, I guess this is the chorus, and somewhere between Helen and sheer happiness, there's a house by the ocean side. We'll fill it with dreams and all the broken things that the morning washed in with the tide. Can you untangle the imagery a little there? Yeah, the idea of somewhere between hell and sheer happiness is that concept of black and white. Because it have to be that you're, you're having a terrible time or you're having a wonderful time. Is there no just like content, peaceful place in the middle that doesn't have to be perfectly one way or the other? And I would love to live at the beach someday. <laughs> I lo- I'm a water person. When people always ask beach or mountains, I'm like, oh, beach every time. So for me, this idea of just allowing life to wash in what it does. And I think at the time I was really grappling with a sense of brokenness in myself. There was something I was after that I never felt okay in my skin. And I was trying to become okay with the ambiguity that is life, that is experience, that is the paradox of feeling multiple things at the same time. So that chorus is about, can we just take each day as it comes? Can we greet the morning and the tide and whatever it washes in? Let's just live this beautiful, and it is quite ideal, right? Let's try to live this beautiful life that is messy. I wasn't okay with the messiness of my humanity at this season in my life. I was really struggling with it. And I wasn't kind to myself. And so this song is a lot about being okay and trying to let myself off the hook and say, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect. Can we just take it as it comes? So I'm just intrigued by the connection between the dreams and all the broken things. And of course, dreams can mean your wishes for the future or it can mean just the random stuff that's floating around in your head, the effluvia, you know. So are the dreams, is that a more intuitive connection or was there something more specific? No, I think that's an intuitive connection. I, I don't remember my dreams. I'm not one that wakes up and remembers a lot of things. I very, very rarely remember dreams. So for me, it was about just the hopes of what life could look like. At the, at the time we were struggling to become pregnant, we were dealing with infertility and I had a lot of hopes for a family and dreams for what my life would look like. And I had a lot of expectation about that. And my reality didn't look like that. You know, I was heading into my mid thirties and I was still childless. And it was like, I had to bring my expectations closer to reality because the gap was a lot for me. I was just trying to figure out if there was something self-referential that this has been set up as this idyllic house so that is the dream. But yes, you're saying the, the house itself contains dreams. 
<laughs> so, so there's a little <laughs> looping there. But if- I don't know. That's very meta. Like that's really like depth. That's very deep into the thought. I don't think I've ever gone that deep into it. Well, let's just see if we can see resonances. So some wishes never get to grow their wings. So that does seem like that the dreams themselves, you know, it's okay to have these desires that are, well, you say later, untold and unmet. So untold, not even articulated. I don't even know what I want necessarily. Even that's okay. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, when you get to that part in the bridge with the untold and the unmet part, like that's about just the ache of the human experience. Like just there's so much in us and so much that wants to come out of us and so much that we hold back, even in our deepest, most trusting relationships that we just have to come to terms with the not having everything look the way we hope it would. A friend of mine this past week was like, I did not think that this is what being a 40 something year old adult would look like. This isn't what I thought it was going to be. And I think that's so many people's experience, right? You arrive at a stage of life and you thought it was going to look a certain way and it doesn't. And how do you reconcile that in yourself? And how do you move forward with your disappointment or your grief or your hope and continue moving forward, even though you feel all of those things at the same time? So, you know, the second verse is definitely, if you're reading into it, you can see my hope for a child there, you know, even the the growing their wings you know, the idea of miscarriage and babies that don't come to fruition. Yep. Pretty literal there. Yep. But that bridge is interesting. The way that you end that, I can see from what you're describing, the theme is we travel all these miles. We're haunted by quiet regrets with this ache in our bones and desired untold and unmet. One might think that you would end the bridge then with a soaring, but that's okay. You know, something that would express that, but no, it's the, isn't anybody coming for us yet? It's, it's this call for salvation, very slightly religious reference or something that is fundamentally mournful, but the song is not fundamentally mournful. Well, and actually that's not what that line meant to me. I get that that's what it sounds like, but I'm going to get kind of real honest here. So I don't want to cut you off guard. (laughs) I was a survivor of child sexual abuse and a theme of my life was that no one came for me. I told grownups what happened and it was the seventies and they swept it under the rug. So this idea that no one comes for me was something that I was really dealing with at the time. So that line is a reference to that place in myself. Isn't anybody coming for us yet? Like, when does someone come for me? And I also, I think it had a lot of dual meaning. It There was a God, there is a God, you know, kind of concept in that because I was grappling spiritually with just a sense of spiritual love of the divine and and where is God as a survivor of abuse I think a lot of women I know who survived ask, you know, where is God for the three-year-old who's being molested? Like, where is, who's coming for that kid? And there's a lot of anger and a lot of regrets and a lot of questions that you kind of learn to live into. And sometimes you don't get answers. And again, it's that place of, there's a lot of broken things here. There's a lot of brokenness and hurt and pain. And I just am going to have to learn to live with some of it because I don't think there are always going to be answers available. Ultimately, when I sing this song now, tying it back into where we were earlier with No More Living Small, I came for myself. So that was my healing piece in the last 13 years since writing this song was I learned how to come for myself. And that's what No More Living Small is. It's saying I don't deserve pain. I don't deserve like I have worth outside of my experience and my pain doesn't get to dictate who I am. So the songs do tie together in their own little way. 
But that's what that line is really about. So is, isn't is anybody coming for us yet? Is that the royal we? Is that a rhetorical we, we? Or you'd kind of set this up as talking with your life partner about the challenges together. So even though this was, as you say, pulling on a very different personal experience. I think I was thinking of the us in my relationship with my husband. But I also was thinking of the us anytime I write. I try to write with a universal mindset, like uh, the common humanity. And so I think that was where the S came in, was just this feeling of, I knew so many people, and I, st- I mean, I still do, who they have an unhealed kid in them. They have unhealed experience, or and they're looking for somebody to come show them love in those spaces. And, and would their lives look different now if they were allowed to offer? You know, Ultimately, I had to offer the two-and-a-half-year-old and me love and safety to heal and move forward in my life and what would happen if we could all do that. So I think the us is, is definitely a very universal thing. And also my, my marriage. Well, let's move on. To <laughs> You're like, Oh my gosh, where, how do we get here? <laughs> Back further in time. Well, I heard from your intro. So find my way home from teeth marks on my tongue, 2004. And this was another one that there's a live version of on pockets of hope, 2008, that I don't know that there's an intro as part of it, but you refer to it later in the set as back to this as being such a central thing that defined your life. So yeah, say a little about this other apparently self-defining song here before we hear it. Well, Find My Way Home was really the original self-defining song. It was a very early song from my career. I wrote it in the year 2000 when I moved from Nashville to Austin and really went out on the road for the first time. Also, the year 2000 was the beginning of me deconstructing my faith. And so there's a lot of faith language in the song. And I was asking a lot of questions about what I believed and why and who I was and who I was doing that for. And honestly, some of those answers I've just come to like 20 years later. And it was a fan favorite. You know, it was one that everybody always asked for early on. So, and I loved playing it. It felt so true for so long. Because when you kind of finally get at your truth and you get to say it out loud, there's so much power in that. So accepting who you are and trying to put that out there. And then for me as a musician, obviously standing up in front of people doing that, like, you know, this is just a powerful song for me. Can't sleep in my own skin tonight Guess I'll hurry up and wait for the dawn Don't know how to say it right, but my world feels wrong And I've been a lover and a liar I've been a poet and a cheat I've been to far Places where they ain't got nothing left to eat And I have been the hero daughter with the picture-perfect family And I've played some real convincing victims in life's tragedies, yeah And it seems I've spent my whole life trying to find my way Feel alone 
solid single. You know, it's got the poppy elements, even though it's not frothy. You know, it's still not fast, but yet it still has enough of that Taylor Swift single kind of thing going. I guess I did want to ask you because you, you've you've sort of veered into country more or less with different albums. That the Tag Hollow Sessions, that one is you know pure like Farmer's Daughter and stuff. You know, so it really seems to vary from project to project exactly how much you're putting on that particular costume. Well, and the Tag Hollow Sessions was inspired by Oklahoma. And so I felt like a lot of red dirt and Americana-y kind of stuff in that felt appropriate. So for here, is this just your, your as close as we're going to get today to talking at length about a, a straight ahead folk sort of thing? You still got the long pauses between words and, you know, you still got, and I noticed in the live versions, you often play even more with milking the rhythms and a little bit of his talk song and, you know, just are can really express this. So is this kind of encapsulate your early style here? Yeah, I think it does. And I have way folkier stuff. I just, we just, that wasn't the songs I chose. I could have chosen those. <laughs> I have very folky folk songs. I mean, as folky as they get, you know. Um, but this song, yeah, like there was a freedom in playing this song to me, which I think translates just in the full on nature of it and just the sung out and strummed out. And the record that this was on originally had a lot of poppiness to it. It had some programming on it. It had a little bit of loops. It, you know, so it was really other. I wouldn't say that I was fully in, even versed in the world of like performing songwriter folk music until after that record was released. Like the current, the modern version of that. Yeah, we haven't talked about sort of music business at all. Was the production on this sort of meant to, or was it successful in getting a little more traction than you had had before or have had since or what? I wouldn't call this record successful, um, <laughs> like business-wise, because I... I reject that term, but I understand what you mean. <laughs> like in the music business terms of like, you released a record and how did it did do? Did it make and a all profit? Those... <laughs> yeah, no, no, it didn't. But it and it didn't actually cost that much to make. And I crowdfunded it. This was before crowdfunding was a thing, 2003. And I pre-sold it to my fan base and paid for it. So no, I did not have a lot of strategy around my music at the time. I just was not, you know, if you think about it, it was the internet wasn't the internet as we know it now. And so the resources just weren't at your fingertips in the same way. I had been to Folk Alliance once, maybe twice. I'd been to two Folk Alliances by now, but I was still really getting my feet under me. And I had no idea how to truly like monetize and be independent. At this time, I think I was still thinking maybe... I would get signed at some point or what are the possibilities? Hopefully somebody will hear it and pick it up. I'd had some licensing stuff at this point that some had panned out and some hadn't. So I was really open to the possibilities at this time, but I wasn't as strategic by any means as I am now. <laughs> Can you say a little about the makeup of the band at this point? Was this again, you've been playing solo mostly and then you hook up with a producer who has some house players that are fairly quickly putting this arrangement together or was there a little a different setup to this one? I had a friend produce it. His name is Kevin Clay. We had some studio players, like just Nashville session players. And then we also had my husband who I, I had just gotten married. And so David came and played. The background vocals are a friend that we brought in from Oklahoma. But other than that, they're session people. So people I didn't know I hadn't played with before we got into the studio. Any sort of comments about the way that this one was put together in terms of the lyrics? Was it still basically the same process that you're describing of carefully over it line by line 
or or is this yeah. way okay? So right from the start, two thousand, you were still writing that way. Yeah, I found I would find a chord progression, and I would do that because I started playing guitar to write songs. I was I had no interest in playing guitar outside of it being a vehicle for songwriting, and so I would find a chord progression that I could execute and play, and that's actually how I learned to play guitar. I learned to play guitar by writing songs. I never took lessons. I lived in Nashville. My dad had given me my first guitar. My dad's a musician. And so I was 20 when I moved there and I was surrounded by guitar players because it's Nashville. And so every time I would be around one, I would say, could you show me your favorite chord progression? And then I would go home and I would write a song with that chord progression in it. And the process of writing the song and playing it over and over again as I wrote it was how I learned how to play those chords. And that's how I learned how to play guitar. I never picked up a guitar and played other people's music. I still feel really ill at ease in cover jams and stuff because that's just super not my thing. You can do operatic wailing. You don't have to <laughs> do anything on guitar. I could. I could. But I don't think I would. Uh, I would do that to people. Um, but I would start music first because it was my weak link. Honestly, as a guitar player, it's like I only had so many chords, so many strum patterns I felt comfortable with. So, but every time I wrote a new song, I would try to put something new in it. So I would try to challenge myself to add a different chord or add a different strum pattern or a picking pattern or a time signature, like that sort of thing. So I was always trying to better myself in little increments, but always within the craft of songwriting. I made a note here. In the middle of the chorus, interesting chords. What? Let me see what I can figure out. What the heck I was talking about? Just that nice turnaround that it makes it a little more three dimensional than if you just this two chord, you know, fairly static thing that's been going forward. It's not a jazz chord. You're just slight, no. slight left turn. <laughs> yeah. Just a little suspension in there. The chorus is basically the same three chords over and over again, except for that little part. And I do a little walk up thing. Yeah. Well, you, and you've got that passing chord, that gap before when you actually do the, because I spent my whole life trying to find my way home. Having that in there, making it clear that it wasn't at least purely a writing lyrics and a melody on a piece of paper, that you had something in your hand when, you know, to put those spaces in there. And the reason I had interpreted the, when will somebody come to us is because you have the little... And I am praying for the Savior to come and rescue me, which you do a little gospel burst at that point. And I am praying for the Savior That you jump up and pitch just for that little phrase. I thought that was a nice, any sort of thought about the, I keep coming up any handed. I'm acting like a fool. I'm praying for the Savior to come and rescue me. I'm drowning underneath the weight of all I'm supposed to be. This is, for being so many years apart from the song we just talked about, you got some very consistent themes here. Yeah, they're totally themes. That's what my experience has been for a really long time. And this was the first time I was able to articulate those things. And I had way more questions than answers at the time. And I was so tired of feeling that way, even then. Well, and the interesting thing about the Wizard of Oz part is that it waits until the bridge. Like there's no other than home. I mean, so was that just a, okay, seems like this is something that you just stumbled across in the bridge and then you ran for it with the rest of the song. I think find my way home, you know, that, that idea is very Dorothy. I mean, the click three times and there you are. And when I wrote this song, I had been a part of a church in Nashville that was very, it was a very large church and I was in a leadership position and I felt like a phony all the time. 
and I felt like I was very convincing on the outside, but my insides weren't convinced about my spirituality. And very shortly after I left Nashville and left that church and kind of just like, I just cashed in my chips really quickly and surprised everyone and was like, I'm moving to Austin. I'm kind of done with being here. Like I was a full-time nanny for, I worked for a songwriter there and I was a nanny for his kids. And I just suddenly was done with being there. And I felt very called to leave, like just to go and be out of Nashville and to try to find my voice as a writer outside of that town, because it's a really hard town to like develop your own sound in because it's Nashville and everyone's a musician. And so right after I left that church, there was a big shakedown and the pastor was outed, this man who I just adored. And like his teaching was really formative for me and my spirituality at the time. There was all this veiled what had happened. Nobody would really say. They actually kept it very covered up. I know now that there was a big affair and it was a big to-do, but it was really disillusioning for me at the time because this man I thought was the end-all be-all of spirituality, like was human. And so when I wrote that chorus, I was thinking about that moment of like the wizard's just some guy like and he just has a new angle like he's preaching and teaching about righteousness and you know all of those tenets of that sort of faith and yet he is living a lie so that's really where that bridge came from was my own disillusionment and my own being so sick of people not of people being fake and feeling that in myself so the finding the way home that has a nice inner symbolism and some kind of irony in other words you're Finding your way home by getting the hell out of there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was I was leaving and trying to find where I belonged. And I was really, I still didn't know where I belonged as a person, as a writer, as a, even as a friend. Like I was trying to find a group of people that I could really identify with who I thought really understood me. And ultimately, 20 years later, I would find that I'm at home in myself. Like home is is in me. It's not outside of me. Okay, I guess I was interpreting... I've been spending my whole life trying to find my way home as now I am home. But no, this is just expressing the ongoing loss. Yes, the ongoing struggle and wondering where home is. Well, speaking of uh, emotional turmoil, let's introduce the last song, You Couldn't <laughs> Stay, which you had written a description of this. I think it's, there's a blog post. Yes, I should direct people to your, your website, kcclifford.com. I like the fact that we've got in these live albums, you're introducing the songs, we get a lot of sense of your personality, and they can just even go read you writing about some of these things. And this one in particular, why don't you repeat some of that sentiment or say whatever you want to about uh, You Couldn't Stay Here. You Couldn't Stay is a song about grief and about death and dying. It was inspired by the loss, initially by the loss of a, of a good friend who died from cancer kind of suddenly. And he had just started going through treatments and hadn't told anyone then he died actually from an allergic reaction to his treatment. And it was so sudden and I was just really sad. And this song kind of poured out. I wrote the song the night before we went into the studio to record the record. We had all the songs finished. We were done. We didn't need any more. Then this song came pouring out. I think that if you were in a room full of people and you reached your arm out to touch with consent to touch anyone around you, you would be hard pressed to not find someone who knows grief, who's lost someone that they care about, who could put themselves in grief in one of these scenarios that's in the song. And Dan and I, I asked Dan, as I started to write it, I called Dan and I said, I need you to come over. And he said, well, are we going to, we were actually going to finish another song called Rise Up. I hadn't finished the lyrics. And he said, 
are we going to write Rise Up? I said, no, we're writing a new song. He said, well, Casey, we have all the songs. I said, I know, but apparently we're going to write another one. So he came over and we both, you know, he had lost a bandmate and we just kind of sat for a minute and, and wrote it. And it's very cyclical about grief. And I think that if we learn how to hold the stories of others better and allow people to sit with their pain, we all know grief. It's something that connects us as much as it isolates us. It's something that connects us in the human experience. And so that's what you can stay is about. And eventually, you know, we would, um, our drummer from the record died last March. He was killed by his son, he and his wife, who was, his son was schizophrenic. And so really now the song feels like it's about Mike more than anything. And it's very, still gives me kind of goosebumps that we wrote this song and it's on this record and that we lost a bandmate that way. So we always um, dedicate it to him when we play it. Well, this one definitely stopped me in my tracks. I'm glad we got to include it. Thank you so much for talking to me about these things. Thank you. Here is You Couldn't Stay. Here's to you who couldn't stay, but you left before I had the chance to say you were a friend. You spurred me on, and the music's not the same now that you're gone.
Thanks so much to Casey. It was a very personal interview, and I really appreciate it when one of my guests is very thoughtful in picking our song selections. These three were clearly very important to her and sum up to a very strong portrait. Remember, you can learn more about her at CaseyClifford.com. In fact, if you sign up for her mailing list, you get a free copy sent to you of a recent live album. And again, I think she really shines through on those live albums because he tells the stories and you just get a lot more of a personality. You can learn more about this podcast at NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. My next interview here will be with Jack Hughes, famed singer from Wang Chung, though the songs we talk about are not in any way 80s dance pop. The latest news, a few episodes down the road, I just recorded one with Victor DiLorenzo, who is the drummer for Violent Femmes, a very talented solo artist and member of 1913, a sort of jazzy thing that he does with a cello player. In other news, I wrote my first song in quite a long time. It is related to one of the Partially Examined Life episodes, so I'm going to be posting some information and a link to that on partiallyexaminedlife.com very soon. And as always, I encourage you to go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic to provide support for this project. But most of all, stay well, support the artists that you love, and keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Mark Lintonmeyer signing off. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.